I V M. Before you listen to this episode of the Seen and the Unseen, I have a recommendation for you. Do check out Pulya Bazi, hosted by Saurabh Chandra and Pranay Kotesane, two really good friends of mine. Kickass podcast in Hindi. It's amazing. America is far away from India, and yet it's also very close to us. Indian culture today, particularly among the English-speaking elites, is practically American culture. and our geopolitics has had the shadow of america hanging over it for all 71 years of our independence whether we are fighting with pakistan or maneuvering with china america's watching closely what does everything that is happening here our geopolitics our culture look like from an american lens how do they view this mad messy region called south asia and what do they want from it welcome to the seen and the unseen Our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Scene in the Unseen. My topic for today is America in South Asia, and it specifically focuses on the insights of an outstanding new book by the historian Srinath Raghavan, titled "The Most Dangerous Place: A History of the United States in South Asia." In the book, Srina traces American involvement in India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan for the last 250 years, from well before India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan even existed as independent nations. How did they look at us? What did they want? Where did their interests coincide with ours? Where did they collide? Where are we now? Where are we going? Srina joins me today to talk about all this and more. But before we begin our conversation, here's a quick commercial break. Like me, are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls? Well, worry no more. Head on over to indiancolors.com. Indian Colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in India and adapts them into objects of everyday use. These include wearable art like stoles and shrugs, home decor like cushion covers and table runners, and accessories like tote bags. This allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price, and artists get royalties on sales just like authors do. What's more, Indian Colors now has an exciting range of new products including fridge magnets with some stunning motifs and salad bowls and platters made of mango wood. Their artists include luminaries like Babu Xavier, Vasvo Xvasvo, Brinda Miller, Dilip Sharma, Shruti Nelson and Pradeep Mishra. They accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting, but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend, head on over to indiancolors.com. That's colors with an o u. And if you want a 20% discount, apply the code IVM20. That's IVM for IVM podcast. IVM20 for a 20% discount at indiancolors.com. Srinath, welcome to the scene in the unseen. Thanks, Amit. Srinath, you're the first historian on the scene in the unseen, and your history is uh, quite interesting itself because you uh, had mentioned that you were into theoretical physics and were thinking of getting a PhD in theoretical physics. But then you joined the Rajputana Rifles, and then you spent a few years there, and then you. uh got into uh, becoming a historian so how did how did that happen well uh, as an undergraduate i was studying physics and hoping to sort of uh, do doctoral work there but uh, you know with things like theoretical physics or pure mathematics uh, either you're really good or you're no good you know you can't be there, there's no such thing as a middling sort of physicist in, in in some ways and i kind of understood pretty quickly that i was on the no good side of things uh so decided to uh, drop the sciences but had very little idea what else to do 
And uh, I had a couple of friends from college who had um, signed up for the short service commission. And that seemed to me to be an interesting way to spend a few years, uh, you know, get to see places I hadn't. And then hopefully make up my mind about what I wanted to do. So I, I joined the Indian Army and um, got commissioned to the Rajputana Rifles. Right. And tell me something about how you got drawn to history per se. Like, uh, were you always a keen reader of sort of books of history and then decided that, hey, I want to do this myself? Or was there something which kind of triggered that? Well, I mean, I was always very interested in politics uh, from the time I was um, you know, a student growing up in India. In, in some ways, you couldn't help it. Early 90s was a highly political time in this country. And uh, I was very interested uh, in, in sort of politics. I was fortunate that when I was a teenager, I was surrounded by people who gave me a lot of exposure to learning, thinking about politics. And of course, history was always a way into that. But uh, I must confess that I didn't get around to doing any serious uh, sort of study of history till such time. Actually, I was halfway through my tenure in the army when it became uh, interesting to me that, uh, you know, some of the things that I was sort of actually doing uh, had, uh, you know, military history and the history of war per se, uh, particular, uh, caught my fancy. And uh, that is how I started getting interested in it. Uh, you know, when I look back, I think the one history book which possibly had the most impact on me was something that I never read as a piece of history in that sense, is this uh, book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by uh, Richard Rhodes, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 1989, if I'm not mistaken. And an uncle of mine who used to go to the United States quite often back in those days actually got me a copy. And I must have read it several times. I still have it on my shelves. And uh, I still think it's a great book. Well, so that's that's a book the listeners can get from Amazon right away. And being a historian, what does it involve? Like we live in an age, of course, where you don't only have facts, you also have alternative facts and you have all kinds of narratives being peddled. So at one level, there is, of course, uh, the sense that uh, the uh, layman might have that, oh, we know what happened in history. Why do we need to, you know, kind of go back and look for, you know, what are we really looking for? And uh, at the other level, there's almost a sense that now, though, it doesn't matter. Anybody can say anything, anything goes. So what does it really involve? Like when you choose a particular project, uh, do you start with uh, a fascination over, say, a particular historical character? Or do you feel that there is a shortcoming with some specific narrative? Or do you feel that there are gaps in this narrative and I need to uh, fill them? How, how does it? Yeah, I think it's more the latter rather than the former, at least in my case. And uh, the way that typically historians uh, and people who are sort of studying history professionally tend to sort of approach uh, is to say that, listen, you want to take a look at some particular question uh, and and then try and, uh, you know, get a grip on it by looking at historical materials, right? So in a sense, uh, what we tend to think of as being taken for granted uh, are things which are constantly up for revision. So in that sense, you know, there's a great Dutch historian called Peter Gale who said uh, that history is an argument without end. And I think that's a very good way of thinking about the subject, which is to say that you're constantly approaching the past with new perspectives because the questions that you're interested about the past are always determined by your present. So it's your current politics, it's your current sort of social interests that in some ways trigger your interest in the past. That is how the study of history continuously evolves over a period of time. And when you're looking at new themes, you're also looking at new evidence. So you're looking at new archives, you're looking at new texts. Uh, so in that sense, uh, you know, it is rarely the case that in history, uh, people tend to disagree about brute facts, right? I mean, of course, you always have some debates about how valuable this or that piece of evidence is. But what you're looking for is a fit between argument and evidence. And in that sense, it's, you know, history, like the other social sciences, uh, is continually determined by your sort of current location and your interests, uh, social location, political location matters a lot. And I guess it's necessarily true that every simple narrative is fundamentally wrong because of its simplicity and, and there are layers and layers and you essentially kind of... Uh, so, you know, before we get to the subject at hand for this episode, uh, 
what does your work then really involve like when you when you begin a project do you already sort of have a broad narrative in mind and you're looking for evidence that confirms it or are you just saying that hey this is interesting let me go a little deeper and find out and then like how does it work what kind of like when you talk about you know going into the archives what are these archives how do you find this material how do you approach it so let me give you a sort of explain this using a concrete example so my one of the books i wrote uh, actually my second book was a uh, history of the creation of bangladesh in 1971 right so for a project like that uh, basically i was actually working on a another earlier project that led me to find a bunch of papers which uh, completely astonished me for the depth of material that they had on the bangladesh crisis and these were the papers of pn huxer the uh, principal secretary to uh, mrs indira gandhi who was a very key figure during the 1971 crisis so what i got really was uh, a bunch of materials which suggested to me that hey there's so much in here that is not known that could be used to tell a much more better informed and a better story but of course you can't do it with just one set of materials right so then for several years i started uh, researching it and the more i went into the subject it seemed to me that you know just a lot of stuff had been written primarily from either the indian or the bangladeshi or the pakistani perspective but what was very interesting to me was the global dimension of the crisis uh, how so many other players who were in some ways geographically remote were nevertheless politically very involved and how all of that came through as i dug deeper into the subject it became apparent to me that we are not only talking about states who were involved but also other kinds of people the cultural influences you know the concert for bangladesh in 1971 uh, you know someone like allen ginsberg uh, writing the famous poem in the new york times and so on right so what it then led me to was to uh, basically take a very different approach to thinking about the creation of bangladesh which in turn then led me to start questioning some fundamental assumptions right that in some ways the creation of bangladesh was inevitable because these two geographical parts were separate actually not true at all in fact it was much more contingent and that was one of the main arguments of the book that if things had not taken the turn that they did in the late 1960s and for reasons which were not specific to bangladesh but for a global conjuncture you may never have had uh, this crisis coming out right which is a bit of an unsettling proposition to make uh, particularly for bangladeshis and uh, but that's that's the way i think history moves is that you start with some piece of evidence you see how it fits with uh, what the received narratives are then you come up with a different way of explaining this stuff uh, and then you sort of present an alternative sort of narrative that that's fascinating and you know one day we should do an episode on 1971 <laughs> sure. and in, in fact the whole bangladesh thing sort of forms part of the narrative of this book your latest book is called the most dangerous place colon a history of the united states in uh, south asia and what the book looks at is uh, essentially evolving american attitudes towards this region which we call south asia over the last uh, more than 200 years and you know how did you arrive at this kind of specific project and i'm also intrigued by the title the most dangerous place in the world Yeah so the project in some ways is uh, you know for uh, various other projects that I've been doing uh, especially for the three uh, previous books that I wrote including this book on the creation of Bangladesh uh, I had been visiting uh, various american archives uh, the national archives in united states various presidential libraries uh, to do research over the last 15 years or so so at some point uh, you know about 3 or 4 years ago it struck me that I just have so much materials that uh, I could still use to sort of uh, tell a story of american involvement in this region and it's again it struck me that much of the narrative and much of the good scholarship and the good books that we have are primarily focusing either on very specific periods like the cold war they tend to focus on the high politics which is to say you know us india us pakistan relationships or they tend to focus on one sets of relationship right i mean it's 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 about how the united states dealt with india or, and so on and so forth uh, and it seemed to me that what we needed was a book which was at once broader 
and longer in historical uh, chronological scope. And, uh, you know, I had already uh, written a book on India during the Second World War in which the United States uh, did play an important role in my research and writing. And it just struck me that, you know, that I, I actually needed to go back right to the moment of the founding of the American Republic and think about U.S. involvement with this part of the world in a longer term story. Because I think one of the great stories of the 20th century in, in, from a historical standpoint uh, is the rise of the United States as a global power without peer and without historical sort of, um, you know, comparison um, being there. So in a sense, uh, to me, the really interesting thing about this book was an attempt to say, how does South Asia fit into the story of American ascendancy? You know, where does this region come in, which in some ways seems so peripheral, that's what everyone assumes, but which has from time to time, you know, imposed itself on core concerns. I mean, to give you just one example, and we can pick up on other things as we go, you know, think of the most dangerous moment in the second half of the 20th century, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? But the Cuban Missile Crisis is a time when the United States is so focused on its main rivalry with the Soviet Union, right? There's nuclear weapons, all of that stuff, right? It's everything that you would assume with the main concerns of the Cold War. But at the same time, the Americans are confronted with the problem that the Chinese have attacked India, right? So the Sino-Indian crisis is something that the Kennedy administration has to attend to even while the Cuban Missile Crisis is playing out, right? So in a sense, the periphery has a way of imposing itself on the core, which I think is the reason why uh, history constantly surprises statesmen, right? Which is why somebody said, you know, a week is a long time in politics. I think that's the reason because you never know what's coming up next. And your book is organized along broadly chronological lines. But at the same time, there are these three strands running through it of, you know, American interest in uh, South Asia, these three sort of uh, uh, different um, areas of concern for them. So can you talk a little bit about how you made that the organizing principle in a sense? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, so the three strands that I sort of uh, talk about really are power, ideology, and culture. And I say that if you want to understand the sort of uh, take an, have an interpretive grasp of how the United States has interacted with this part of the world and how that interaction has changed, has become important, less important, you know, immediate problems come in, there are longer term. But from a sort of a 230-year perspective, there are these three strands which really stand out in American involvement uh, with this part of the world. Uh, the first is power, by which I mean the pursuit of interests in the first instance of economic interest, because that's what Americans came to the subcontinent for, uh, trade. Uh, but then subsequently, of course, you had uh, geopolitical uh, and security military interests, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, which becomes a very important theme. The second uh, is the role of ideology. Uh, and there again, you know, there is a peculiar sort of American ideological constellation, which has been very important in the way that the United States has uh, sort of dealt with the rest of the world. And this is something which is reasonably well established by historians of the United States, is as a combination of what you might call as uh, Protestant and Republican ideas, right? So the United States has this sense of itself uh, at the moment of its creation in 1776 as this uh, divinely sort of elect country, uh, which has a mission. And that mission is the spread of liberty to the rest of the world, right? So it's, it's a very powerful fusion of these two themes of Protestantism and Republicanism, which is a very peculiar feature of American uh, sort of ideology, which again is has been a running theme from the sort of moment of creation and their engagement with the subcontinent through almost to the present. I mean, you only need to think about someone like Barack Obama saying that, you know, United States is the indispensable nation, right? I mean, so there's a sense not just of exceptionalism in the ordinary sort of sense of it, but there's a peculiar quality to that exceptionalism. And I wanted to emphasize how those ideas have been very important in the way that the United States has dealt with this part of the world. And the third is really about culture, uh, by which I actually mean two slightly different, but nevertheless related things. 
the first and in some ways the easiest way is about transmission of cultural ideas, right? So you want to talk about things like how popular American culture, Hollywood, or in my case, jazz, more interestingly, uh, has always been a important part of the way that American mores and values uh, were tried to be transmitted to this part of the world. And of course, how people appropriate those and make very different things of them, right? So what does it mean to listen to, uh, you know, Duke Ellington in Afghanistan uh, in the early 1960s is an interesting question. Uh, but I have a sort of a broader emphasis on culture, uh, which is of saying that how do you understand people's societies which are very different from you? How do you cope with this idea of difference? And there I say that, you know, American uh, ideas of race, religion in particular, among other things, have been very important in the way that the United States has understood the subcontinent, right? So I use sort of accounts of missionaries, of travelers, of uh, merchants, of people who are sort of engaging with this part of the world politically, journalists and so on. And what you find is that while the sort of the tenor of the uh, engagement changes, there is some underlying consistency to it, which I try to capture by the idea of hierarchy, which is to say the Americans have always thought of the subcontinent as, uh, you know, being hierarchically somewhat lower placed than them, right? So the Anglo-Saxons are pretty much at the top and so on. And, you know, these ideas tend to evolve over a period of time. Initially, it was about race, then it was about some sort of biological construct, then it's about survival of the strongest and so on. Uh, but right down to the 20th century, there was the sense that you know, these are very different people. And to give you an example, I mean, even things that we wouldn't consider as sort of inflected with these things, like ideas about economic development in the 20th century, American modernization theories, which was so influential in the way that the United States assisted various countries with the economic development, were very much premised on this idea that there are some countries which are underdeveloped, which are the bottom of the civilizational scale, and others are at the top. And the challenge is to get those at the bottom to emulate those at the top. So in that sense, I say that, uh, you know, this notion of hierarchy has uh, been remarkably sort of durable. And is a very important part of understanding how the Americans understood. Because in some ways, when we think about things like interests or power, you know, we almost think of them as tangible things, right? I mean, that's why everyone says, you know, you've got to be realistic because you think that politics is about power and so on. But power is something that is ultimately about how you perceive it, right? So how your interests get constituted in the first place, I think is a very important part of understanding any political process. And there, this cultural dimension of it seems to me to be very, very important. I mean, the way that uh, the Americans from very early on made a distinction between Islam and Hinduism in the subcontinent. You know, those had sort of implications for the way they saw India and Pakistan after 1947. Exactly. And you, you sort of start off the book talking about the late 18th century traders who first came here. And immediately you see a confluence of both the economic interests because they've obviously come to make money. And also uh, this cultural aspect that you speak of where that sense of racial and cultural superiority is immediately evident. And it almost seems to arise to begin with from a visceral reaction to uh, sort of what they saw around them. Like there's one writer you've quoted in your book who talks about being so disgusted by a, a quote-unquote loathsome beggar that he can't even get himself to hit him because he mm. can't even, you know. And and that sense of, you know, so they have this condescending and very superior attitude towards the Indians aligned with this, uh, you know, or rather uh, sort of um, contrasted with their economic interest in, uh, you know, embedding themselves uh, and kind of making money. That is right. Uh, because, you know, the one thing we have to realize is that in the early uh, decades after American uh, independence in 1776, see, the United States was in pretty much in doldrums economically, right? And, and there was a huge outward drive towards finding new markets, new avenues for trade and so on. And there was a very influential group of, uh, you know, merchant, seafaring merchants uh, based primarily in the Boston area, New England, uh, who 
became the vanguard of much of this trade. Uh, China was always a very important destination, but in, in the course of that, India also becomes quite important. And tracing those links is one of the sort of major um, challenges of uh, seeing how the early interactions happen. But as you're saying, even economic sort of interactions are uh, influence inflected through this cultural prism through which the Americans are trying to perceive. And I don't want to give a sense that, you know, this is some kind of simple monolithic uh, idea of sort of superiority out there. Uh, I think the fundamental issue is not so much about superiority, inferiority as about uh, some sense of hierarchy. Which is to say that even if people are at the bottom, you feel that, you know, they need to be helped, right? right. I mean, so even a benevolent impulse can come from a sense of hierarchy. And at bottom, this is about how you deal with difference. How do you deal with people who are so different from you are, right? How do you deal with a religion like Hinduism or whatever, a group of people who call themselves the Hindus who have this unique institution called the caste system, you know, which you've never sort of come across. I mean, you have race in America, which is very understandable to you. But then you use the prism of the race to understand how this sort of caste arrangement works here, right? And then you come up with certain kinds of... Uh, so those ideas, uh, the, the sort of often contradictory impulses and constellation of things, crystallize over a period of time. And what I then try and uh, show is how they remain durable and important well into the 20th century. And what you really have in the first half of the 19th century, as you describe it, is that American interaction with South Asia, with India and so on, is basically takes two, two manifestations. I mean, one is trade, one is missionaries. So the missionaries, of course, embodying what you call the benevolent uh, impulse, that these are low people and we must lift them up. Mm. And, and trade, of course, being what it is. And gradually during this time, you talk about how India for them evolves from being a, a quote-unquote land of fortune to a realm of fantasy. Mm. And you know where they get more interested in sort of uh, the spiritual aspect of uh, India, you know, the transcendentalists uh, sort of um, also get pretty influenced by that. But in the middle of the 19th century, you point to two things, two events, which change that interaction between America and South Asia completely. That's right. So, you know, the two events that you're uh, referring to are the sort of uh, Indian sort of rebellion of 1857-58. Uh, and the American Civil War, which uh, starts just a, a few years afterwards. And both of these are sort of important historical ruptures in these societies in their own right. But what it means is that the early period of interaction, when you have this very uh, dense commercial exchanges, all of that comes to a close, right? Now, in some ways, India does benefit from the American Civil War. For instance, Indian cotton exports had a huge boom because American sort of cotton was sort of locked up, right, because of the Civil War and so on. So you did have some, uh, or, or even things like, you know, the export of sort of Pashmina uh, from Kashmir. Uh, Kashmir actually experienced a major boom during the American Civil War. So you did have some benefits, but the reality was that the, uh, you know, the sort of the, the long distance trade, which was a mainstay in some ways, uh, comes to an end because of this period. And after that, when there is a reconfiguration, it happens uh, in more or less autonomous ways, right? So uh, after the uh, Indian sort of uh, rebellion is quelled and India is integrated in the British Empire, you have the integration of India with the global economy under the aegis of the British Empire, right? So that's a very different form of engagement with the rest of the world. And the United States, of course, becomes this continent-sized economy at home, which Americans realize that, you know, if, if only we know how to exploit this market, then we are set because, uh, you know, and, and for the rest of the 20th, uh, 19th century and well into the 20th century, the rest of the world actually matters very little in terms of trade for the United States. I mean, even today, actually, if you just look at trade as a percentage of American GDP, you'll find that it's it's much lesser than that of any other advanced economy. Because the United States has this humongous advantage of a continent-sized economy, which the Americans were learning to sort of uh, integrate 
exploit, build companies on scale, etc., etc. All of that happens in the 19th century. So that, that the two sort of uh, revolutions are a, in some ways uh, a major point of rupture. But nevertheless, there are some continuities across this period, uh, particularly in, in, in the realm of some of those things you mentioned, like the activities of missionaries, right? And again, I think the whole question of uh, missionaries and religion shows the kind of contradictory strands that you had to this interaction. Once again, it's not monolithic at all. So on the one hand, you had these missionaries who first came to the subcontinent in 1812. Now, before uh, that period, uh, the British East India Company would not allow any missionary activity to happen in India, including British missionaries were not allowed. So when it opens up, that's the time when the Americans are also constituting the missionary board. So it's it's a good, nice confluence of things. So American missionaries start coming to this part of the world. Uh, you know, as, as early as 1813, they are in uh, Burma, in places of what you'd call like Nagaland today already. But then they spread out to other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, initially they have uh, very little success in their actual mission, which is that of harvesting souls and you know, converting people to Christianity. But their uh, other kinds of social sort of uh, consequences which follow from missionary activity are, I think, very important and are running through the 19th century into the early 20th century. You know, the missionaries are the first ones who uh, introduce print culture in various parts of India, including Western India. You know, we are we doing this in Bombay. And, uh, you know, this part of the world benefited a lot from various kinds of printing presses established by the missionaries. The missionaries were the first ones actually to have, uh, you know, dictionaries for Indian languages in English because they had to sort of translate the Bible because, you know, Protestantism expects that you would engage with the text yourself, right? Uh, they were the first ones who emphasized primary education even for women and girls. Jyotiba Phule and his wife were both, uh, you know, educated in uh, missionary schools. Uh, you know, the missionaries in uh, southern India, like my home state of Tamil Nadu, uh, were very active in what were then known as the pariah colonies or where Dalits uh, lived and, and, you know, were very influential in giving them education, allowing them, to, sensitizing them to land rights and such like things. Um, you know, later in the uh, 19th century, missionaries were active in famine relief uh, in uh, Victorian India. And of course, uh, you know, they were active in, in a range of sort of uh, quasi-developmental medical activities as well. You know, you think of something like uh, Christian Missionary College in Wellore, which is the first big medical college in this country, set up by American missionaries. Uh, you know, the eradication of hookworm was actually undertaken by American missionaries, supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, already by 1910-15. So you have this extraordinary seam of activity which is continuing despite this rupture. And would you say this is something that is part of or runs parallel to America's otherwise sense of manifest destiny? You know, which, uh, you know, you've defined as, you know, the spread of liberty and republicanism and all that. But it seems that at another level there is, uh, and this perhaps arises to begin with out of the benevolent instinct, but is also, you know, a sort of a reform process at the same time where they see all these things that are wrong with the local culture in their eyes, of course, not necessarily otherwise. And then they try to reform it and a lot of good comes out of that. No, I think it's it's very much part of this uh, process, right? So the idea of manifest destiny is first, uh, you know, adumbrated in the American context in the 1830s. And the idea is to say that, uh, you know, basically United States has is destined to conquer all of North America, right? Because there were all these territories which were occupied by indigenous communities, the Indians in North America. And, and manifest destiny was basically an ideological sort of uh, justification for American expansion, in a continental sense, right? But what is interesting, uh, and to me it was very striking, was how this whole ideology of manifest destiny in some ways was always justified as uh, being completely in contrast to the imperialism being practiced by other countries like Britain, particularly in cases like India, right? So American 
imperialism at home or American expansionism at home was always seen as a better alternative to the kind of exploitation of countries like uh, India that were being done by the British. Right? In the sense they're less coercive and yeah, so on. Not just less coercive, but they believe that, you know, Americans are settlers. They actually settle down in this land, whereas uh, British are just coming, they're visiting, they're going back, they're exploiting this country, they're taking away its treasures. So it's, it's very interesting how the American reading of India up to the mid-19th century is really, uh, you know, is a mirror through which they look at Britain itself, right? Which is a country with which they have very serious problems at this point of time. In fact, in one of your early chapters, you've also cited this defense of slavery that was made That's by right. someone who said that, hey, you talk about slavery, but look at the British oppression of the Indian natives. That is far, far worse. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and uh, in a sense, once Britain becomes uh, this great advocate of abolition of slavery, you know, that the whole abolitionist movement is in Britain, the Americans, especially in the South, uh, who are the pro-slavery lot, uh, are, you know, constantly calling out British hypocrisy by pointing to India, right? So in a sense, India is part of those domestic American debates. Yeah. So it's in that sense that I feel that, you know, while in a sense many people may not have actually known India, India did have an important part in this American ideology. And of course, uh, Protestantism and the role of the missions was very much part of this idea that, you know, the United States has discovered this unique constellation of providential sort of, uh, you know, faith-based sort of blessings uh, with this ability to sort of craft a Republican uh, model of politics and that this is in some ways the best thing for the rest of the world, right? And of course, there were differences even in the United States about how to take that in some ways mirrors this whole democracy promotion kind of debates of the last decade, uh, you know, uh, which is to say that uh, should the United States sort of uh, you know, stand as a shining uh, city on the hill and act as a model or should it actually be sort of doing things actively and so on. And, and there were always debates about those kinds of things. But uh, I think there was a broad consensus that, yes, the United States was in some ways destined and uh, they were people who were chosen, elect, uh, which is a Protestant sort of uh, way of thinking. And, and I guess if there was an ebb and flow on this, you could say the period between the two world wars was sort of the ebb when it, uh, you know, uh, drifted more towards isolationism and saying, hey, we'll have nothing to do with the world. And that's also a very interesting period in world history because for the first time, you don't really have one dominant power anymore. Uh, you know, Britain has kind of lost mm -hmm. some of that and there's sort of a vacuum within which the Great Depression happens and uh, Nazi Germany happens and all those kind of things happen. So, but in that period, what I also found interesting in your book is that you see, uh, you know, you've pointed out the various contradictory stands of one, there is this growing cultural fascination with India, especially someone like Gandhi, who was uh, described by them as the greatest living person and Time magazine made him person of the year in 1930. And there's something symbiotic there also, because a lot of Gandhi's inspiration came from Thoreau and a lot of Thoreau's inspirations came from Indian mysticism. So it's kind of funny that way. But that again is in contrast to this anti-immigration sentiment that is coming up and the trouble that Indian immigrants uh, in America are facing. But broadly, by the time the World War II happens, you, you pointed to a couple of public polls where there is widespread support for Indian independence in America, even though America, the, the state itself, has taken a step back and saying, hey, you know, we're not going to interfere with the rest of the world. That's right. I think the period between the two world wars is kind of uh, interesting because while the United States is not directly politically engaged, there is a much growing uh, greater awareness of Indian politics, of Indian society and so on. And, uh, you know, this whole fascination with Gandhi in some ways is a reaction to the First World War, right? Because after the end of the war, you know, there's a huge pacifist movement which happens in most Western countries uh, to which there is a strand even in the United States. And some of the, you know, better known figures of that period, uh, you know, actually came out of that strand of uh, pacifist uh, thinking. And for them, you know, Gandhi was this sort of seen as embodying this new form of politics, which emphasizes nonviolence uh, and civil disobedience. And as you say, you know, in, in some ways that uh, goes back to Thoreau, whom Gandhi had read. Now, um, you know, in, in an earlier question, you had asked about, you know, uh, you know, this sort of transcendentalists uh, who are a group of, again, uh, 
intellectuals mostly in and around Boston who were very fascinated by India in the mid-19th century. Uh, Emerson, Thoreau uh, and others. Uh, the interesting thing is how this phenomenon is a constant recurrence, right? So you have the transcendentalists in the mid-19th century. You have the American pacifists in the early 20th century. Uh, and if you fast forward into the 1960s, the American sort of hippie trail, so to speak, right? Now, in each of these instances, what you find is that India and its culture particularly the Indian sort of religion, especially the high philosophical sort of, you know, the Upanishads and the mysticism, uh, the, the sort of the metaphysics, so to speak, uh, is seen as providing an antidote to American commercialism, to American militarism, you know, uh, in a sense, India is this other to the United States, right? So so there's this constant fascination. So uh, with India as somehow providing a, a refuge from everything that is wrong with the United States, right? So in, in a sense, the Gandhian moment is very much like that. But what you find is that in the 1920s and 30s, there are lots of Americans who come, uh, who spend a lot of time with Gandhi. Uh, in fact, some of the first expositions in uh, sort of outside of India of Gandhian nonviolence and its principles were undertaken by uh, people. Some of these people, of course, went back and influenced another generation of American activists during the civil rights movement uh, who again looked to Gandhi, uh, you know, Martin Luther King uh, and others uh, for whom this was very important. And of course, uh, you know, and, and vice versa, as you're saying, the, the transmission belt of this kind of uh, interaction between particularly groups of African-Americans and the Indian nationalist movement was very strong, right? So you have a figure like Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay who uh, goes to the United States and, you know, uh, and, and sort of is, is really uh, very well received in terms of the kinds of audiences that she has uh, and understands and tries to relate these two problems, right? So, so there is a sense that just as African-Americans are being oppressed within the United States of America, the you know, there is a problem of imperialism, which is seen as a sort of international counterpart to a domestic problem, right? So there are these many ways in which India and the United States at a sort of a common popular level of, of that of the people come together uh, before this great sort of geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, watershed of the Second World War happens. And, and then with the Second World War, obviously, the US has to shed its isolationism. And, and you also have, uh, you know, you also write about how Roosevelt is favorably inclined towards Indian independence. He pushes the cause. He tries to intervene, for example, when there is a famine in Bengal. And at various times, he tries to intervene with Churchill to sort of uh, take a kinder attitude. But at the same time, there is a fact that India is, uh, you know, uh, also part of the war and Japan can invade at any time. So giving them independence now makes no sense. And, uh, you know, so Roosevelt also has to kind of contend with uh, those uh, sort of... How, how, how did all of that play out? So, uh, you know, by the time the Second World War begins, uh, September 1939, uh, the, the story in India is that, you know, um, India is basically taken into the war without any consultation with any Indian, you know, sort of political uh, groups. Uh, it's worth recalling that at this point of time, uh, it was Indian political parties which were in power in the provinces, Congress party, of course, but others as well. And uh, that, you know, the Congress actually decides not to support the war effort, even though they are favorably sort of, they, they do believe that the fascists have to be sort of, Nazis have to be resisted. But they believe that uh, Britain cannot, on the one hand, say that it's fighting for democracy while withholding rights of Indians. So so there is this period of impasse, uh, really, between uh, 1939 and 1942, when the Congress party is kind of trying to toy with various kinds of positions, which will allow it to reconcile both these imperatives. One of supporting the war effort, which at least people like Jawaharlal Nehru and uh, most of the other leadership was very favorably inclined. Gandhi, of course, had a very different view because of his uh, sort of stance on non-violence. But at the same time, you know, you also want some kind of statement from uh, the British about uh, independence for India, which is not forthcoming at all. And the United States uh, has been sort of watching this. And once the attack on Pearl Harbor, which coincides with attacks on various British territories of Southeast Asia and the advance of Japanese to Burma, by March, uh, April 1942 happens and the United States is fully engaged. 
then they decide that uh, you know india has to be sort of bought into the war effort uh, wholeheartedly rather than this kind of a situation where their cooperation at the popular level seems to be withheld even though the indian army is growing pretty fast but uh, so it's in that context that the roosevelt administration actually uh, president roosevelt himself uh, leans on churchill to say that you know you have to sort of give some attention to the india problem it is against that backdrop that the famous sort of uh, mission led by stafford cripps comes to india to discuss with indian leaders of various kinds uh, about what kind of a constitutional settlement can come up for india and with what what timetable and so on now the mission fails but what is interesting is uh, how interested the americans are in keeping that going now even after that failure the americans don't disengage immediately uh, it's actually the the turning point really comes with the quit india movement which uh, was a popular movement even though we tend to associate it with gandhi and others you know you know what karo ya maro kind of slogan and so on you know do or die but the reality was that a lot of people started doing uh, things quite autonomously during the quit india movement right so there were many groups of protesters who went uh, the quit india movement was quite violent uh you know uh the, at least in eastern india in bengal and other parts uh there were military supply lines which were being sort of endangered by the activities of the rebels and it is in that context that the americans actually decide that we have to prioritize the war with japan over a domestic indian political settlement and we cannot jeopardize this at this point of time by choosing sides between and and of course churchill is an important ally because they do want britain to remain engaged in the war so uh in that context americans sort of take a back step uh and and don't really uh try and play much of a uh, role so it's quite interesting that you know even um, successive sort of emissaries sent by uh, roosevelt uh however tend to take a very sympathetic line towards um, you know indian nationalism towards the congress party towards gandhi who was in a major fast in early 1943 uh, at one point it looks like he might just die and the americans are intervening saying save his life so, yeah right absolutely so so in a sense th- there is a, a degree of this thing but india becomes very important from the perspective of the war because um, by 1943 india emerges as this most important allied base for operations in southeast asia uh the americans are involved in the subcontinent directly in a sense of supporting uh, economic sort of activity around the war the war effort itself you know uh it, it it's it's striking there's one part of the rail network uh between calcutta and assam which was then you know assam then included everything uh, up to the burma border uh, an 800 km stretch of it which uh, was actually operated by the americans themselves directly sure. right so the americans actually very heavily engaged you know they they took over the sort of operations of the calcutta port to a considerable extent right so they they were very very uh, deeply involved in the subcontinent for the first time you know thousands of americans actually saw the subcontinent um, soldiers came here lived here um, so in in that sense uh, i think the the second world war uh, really marks an important sort of rupture with everything that and, and do you think that sympathetic position that the americans uh, took and the interventions they made to churchill had any role to play in making uh, india's independence more probable well i mean i think the fact was that the crips mission failed as i said uh, in a sense that you wouldn't have any immediate resolution but the mere fact that the british had to send out a mission and agree that india's independence was on the cards meant that whenever the war came to an end you were not going to have a situation where the the british could reasonably expect to dial back from that i i i think given the scale of india's commitment during the second world war given the scale of sacrifices made by india during that period i mean just in terms of simple uh, financial uh, transactions you know at the end of the second uh, world war britain owed india 3 billion pounds now which in today's currency is like the equivalent of 300 billion us dollars uh you know that was the amount of money that britain owed to india for the war effort of india right so it's an extraordinary sort of mobilization of a very Which poor india country. of course wanted to use to rebuild its economy exactly, and so yeah. on and that didn't work out yeah that didn't work out uh, so in a sense you know you had this extraordinary sort of um, um, you know transformation of the relationship between britain and india which had happened 
during the course of the war. So it was going to be very difficult for anyone to dial back from there. Um, but nevertheless, by the time the war comes to an end, the Americans are actually quite happy to let the British sort of run the subcontinental affairs because they are just too engaged on what is happening in Europe, you know, where the, where the sort of, you know, the post-war period and, you know, the, the onset of the Cold War, etc., as well as East Asia with the occupations of Japan, Korea, you know, various kinds of things happening. The Americans are actually quite happy to let the British sort of come back into fray. And it's not really until the Korean War of 1950-53 that the Americans then decide to displace the British and take a much more direct active role in the affairs of the subcontinent. I think World War II is an apt time to take a quick commercial break. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another week on IVM Podcast. It's been a great week. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. Also, please make sure that you do tell a friend about a podcast. We really, really, really are trying to grow the audience. And the more people who you tell, the better off we all are. On Cyrus Says This Week, Cyrus talks to popular TV and theater actor Ritasha Rathor. Ritasha talks about Sex Rated, a recent Vice documentary that she hosted. On the Pragati Podcast, Pavan and Hamsani are joined by author and journalist James Crabtree. They discuss his experience of being a foreign correspondent in India and how to understand cronyism in Indian policymaking. On the scene in the unseen, Amit Verma is joined by Srinath Raghavan, a former infantry officer in the Indian Army. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research, and they discuss the history of U.S. involvement in the South Asian region. On the Rediscovery Project, Ambika and Hoshna rediscover Mumbai this time. They talk about their visits to Elephanta Caves, Dharavi, and Baudajilad Museum. On the Geek Fruit Podcast, leading up to the release of the second installment of the Fantastic Beasts franchise, Zinkar and Jishnu revisit their origin stories of the Potterverse. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Welcome back to The Scene in the Unseen. I'm here with Srinath Raghavan and we're talking about U.S. attitude towards South Asia. Srinath, you were saying that, you know, we were talking about how the U.S. was focused on, uh, you know, became refocused on uh, South Asia during World War II after this long period of isolationism because India was both an important front in um, the, the war per se with, uh, you know, worries about Japan invading and also because things, I guess, had reached that stage in the popular imagination where Gandhi was a popular figure and there was widespread support for Indian independence. But after the war, um, uh, you know, America sort of turns his gaze away from South Asia and you uh, mentioned two reasons for this. Yeah, so the uh, the primary reason, of course, is that the Americans are uh, very preoccupied with much of the rest of the world, right? I mean, there, there is uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe uh, whose fate is yet to be decided. The reconstruction of uh, these economies have to be undertaken. There is American sort of uh, occupation in East Asia of Japan, uh, Korea, all of these are uh, things which which take up a lot more uh, time and attention. And the Americans are reasonably happy to let the British uh, come back. The Americans support broadly uh, the attempts by the British in 1946 to actually keep India uh, together. I know, which, uh, you know, in India, we tend to assume that the British always wanted to partition India. I mean, mm -hmm. whatever be the divide and rule policy over a longer frame. The fact was that in 1946, the British did want to keep India together. Principally because India had proved to be such a great strategic asset to the British Empire during the Second World War. So because partition of India would have meant partition of the Indian Army, right? right. So, so that was something the British were desperately trying to avoid. Uh, and, and the Americans were happy to sort of support that line. And ultimately, of course, um, when partition kind of became inevitable, they, they went along with it. But, uh, but again, in a sense, even uh, subsequently, Americans would regret the fact that they allowed the British to, in some ways, lead them by their noses, especially, say, when the Kashmir issue came uh, before the UN Security Council in 1948. Um, the American position on that particular dispute uh, which was was very strongly shaped by British, who in turn had 
wider concerns about Muslim populations in Palestine and what would happen if they were seen as opposing Pakistan on this particular issue because Kashmir was a Muslim majority state and so on, right? So the British had a very... And the Americans were just like, hey, you guys know Kashmir better, so we'll defer to you. Yeah, so so they just allowed them to sort of do that. And uh, in in some ways, you know, subsequently, Americans would would say that, listen, maybe that was not the best thing to do. But nevertheless, uh, given the range of other uh, claims on their time and attention and energy, um, that is what the Americans ended up doing. And as I said, you know, things only start changing from uh, the you know, second half of 1950 when uh, North Korea attacks South Korea. And there is a, now a major concern that the Soviet Union might actually strike uh, similarly at other places, particularly in the Persian Gulf, which was seen as very vulnerable. And in that context, Americans then start thinking seriously about building alliances to contain the Soviet Union in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. Uh, and in both these contexts, uh, funnily enough, it's Pakistan, which is seen as the more chosen partner. And again, uh, there, uh, you know, you can talk about how this sort of stereotypical images of uh, Hindus and Muslims then gets transposed onto Indians and Pakistanis. And which is Muslims being virile and warriors exactly, and yeah. Hindus and being uh, shifty sort of and effect shady. And, uh, the, you know, incapable. The Kipling sort exactly, of Exactly, right. And, and uh, it, what is interesting to me, and, and again, you know, these are the things that you learn just by doing research is, is how striking are those sort of tropes and themes and, you know, those codes of thinking about this part of the world, uh, you know, which, which go back to this literature. I mean, like Kipling, for instance, I mean, like generations of Americans only knew the subcontinent through Kipling, right? And in that sense, uh, you know, the influence of those ways of thinking was, was very strong. So in a sense, uh, and, and, you know, it is interesting that when the U.S.-Pakistan uh, alliance is concluded in 1954, the Americans do hardly any serious assessment of what is it that Pakistan is going to do for them by way of this alliance, except for assuming that Pakistan has somehow a very great supply of uh, you know Punjabi Muslims who can be fielded in uniforms against the Red Army or somebody else, and that you know this is uh, these are people who are sort of predisposed to fight in a way that India. And of course, there is a political problem as well, which is that India is non-aligned. Jawaharlal Nehru has uh, his own sort of views on the United States and its policies in Asia. And and that also adds to the sort of, uh, you know, um, the, the sort of growing gulf between India and the United States. During this period. And, and one of the things that struck me was that at the moment of independence, you could probably say that there's a sort of a blank slate in South Asia, that Pakistan, India, they can turn whichever way. And at that point, uh, Jinnah sort of takes a practical real politic view. He sees what is happening with, uh, you know, that uh, the US would need a counterpoint to the Soviet Union. And in fact, you quote him as telling Margaret Bourke-White, uh, quote, America needs Pakistan more than Pakistan needs America, unquote. And therefore, you know, there are those overtures towards America. And in contrast, Nehru basically alienates the US in three ways. Number one, he has this whole philosophical approach that Asia is for Asians. So getting rid of uh, colonialism doesn't only mean getting rid of the British, it means Asia is for Asians. Uh, the second approach is, of course, his whole approach towards a mixed economy and import substitution and so on, which doesn't at that time align with the Americans' ideology. And again, here again, ideology sort of coming into it. And the third is simply his personal arrogance towards Americans, because, you know, a lot of these early Indian freedom fighters were also, in a sense, British liberals and he takes that kind of snobbishness and attitude to his approach with the Americans. That's right. I think it's uh, fair to say that, you know, um, you know, all of, all of the things that you mentioned are were important issues in the way that US-India relations unfolded in this early period. Uh, Pakistan, uh, you know, made a pitch for American assistance pretty quickly, you know, uh, 
even though for all of Jinnah's bravado, I mean, the fact was that Pakistanis desperately needed uh, this thing. And at that point of time, uh, their concern was not so much uh, military sort of counterweight against India as economic aid because it was a new state which was being created and so on. But of course, once the Kashmir issue came to the fore and uh, India and Pakistan were locked in this sort of antagonism and were fighting a war and so on, uh, it became clear to the Pakistanis that in order to offset India's sort of uh, superior uh, military and economic capabilities, they needed uh, some kind of a counterweight. So that you have this sort of wooing of the Americans, which happens in the context of the Korean War, etc., culminating in the thing, right? The second point is about uh, economic philosophies and so on. And uh, and again, what is interesting in the early period is that, yes, uh, you know, as early as 1939, when the Second World War was beginning, the Americans are, uh, at least parts of the State Department are starting to think about what do we need for the post-war world, right? And one of the things that is very strong in American thinking uh, is that the post-war world should not have the problems that the interwar period had. And they believe that one of the major reasons why you had this kind of aggression by Japan, countries like Germany, etc., was that the global economy had been broken up into various kinds of autarkic blocks. And one of those autarkic blocks, incidentally, uh, during the Great Depression was that of the British Commonwealth, right? So, which is one of the, so opening up the British Commonwealth countries like India and integrating them with the global markets was a very important part of the American vision for the post-war world, right? So, the United States wanted very much to keep India in the capitalist um, sort of this thing and believed that India had to be an important part of that story. So, the Americans were willing to cut India a lot of slack. I mean, I don't think the problem was as much about India adopting a planned economic growth model or even a mixed economy. Uh, as with many of their other allies, the Americans were willing to sort of give a lot of, uh, you know, uh, ground to countries to decide what was working for them because their ultimate aim was to ensure reconstruction, development and integration in a capitalist rather than the socialist frame, right? So that was the broader consideration. But I think, the, the you know, there were issues over, say, American investments uh, in, in the subcontinent. Uh, which uh, was interestingly enough, uh, you know, opposed not just by the political class, but by the Indian business community, right? I mean, if you think of all the people who wrote the Bombay Plan of 1944, uh, they were the same people who were constantly reminding Jawaharlal Nehru that, you know, do not, uh, you know, liberalize your sort of industrial policy, etc. Because they thought that India has to have this space for Indian capitalism to come up. Well, out of self-interest, because they wanted to protect their own yeah. interests. And then interest. they believed that, you know, so far, the experience of having been working with British capital in India in such a big way, was that Indian capital was always sort of, you know, never allowed to grow. And they believe right. that this independence also meant an opportunity to create a national economic space with an Indian sort of capitalist right. uh, sort of uh, led development happening, right? So so there was that kind of a thing. Uh, but the Americans also had other kinds of differences with India, right? For instance, the Americans uh, throughout the first and the second five-year plan, which if you, if you say is the first decade after uh, Indian independence, really, uh, through the 1950s, were insisting that India was focusing too much on heavy industrialization, not paying enough attention to agriculture. Right. And even though India did not actually go with American priorities, Americans gave enormous amounts of economic aid to India. I mean, if you think of something like the second five year plan, you know, there were such large financing gaps in the plan that uh, even the planners themselves assumed that this money would materialize from somewhere. And that somewhere was the United States of America, which was the only dollar surplus country, so to speak. So in, in, in that context, the Americans were willing to sort of, uh, you know, despite these differences, they would have sort of accommodated. it. The third point which you're saying is quite interesting and important which is about Jawaharlal Nehru's attitudes towards the United States and its policies in Asia, but also towards the United States itself, right? So, on the policy front, um, I think it's fair to say that Nehru believed that the United States, you know, in the post-war period was, in effect, creating divisions amongst Asian countries by continuing to hold on to military bases in Japan and other places. 
and that US policy in some ways was a very sort of destabilizing element in this region and that was a major source of sort of you know clash of world views so to speak um, between uh, these two countries uh, and of course you know darlan nehru as you rightly point out i think it's fair to say had uh, you know uh, had a degree of contempt for the americans uh, as a bunch of parvenu capitalists you know which which mirrored the attitudes of the british aristocracy more than that of anything else in fact uh, there is a very oft quoted uh, line in the uh, memoirs of dean atchison who was uh, president truman's secretary of state and he says that you know when i met jawarla lehru i was reminded of queen victoria's statement about uh, prime minister william gladstone Uh, and she said that he spoke to me as if he was addressing a public meeting uh, and you know in in a sense that's the way that uh, we felt about jawarla nehru as well so so this there was definitely um, that that kind of a cultural gulf as well uh, nehru once very condescendingly told jrd tata do not speak to me of profit it is a dirty word and i suppose that attitude carries through to how he looked at american capitalism but also perhaps there is some amount of animus as you've pointed out uh, in the book uh, through you know incidents like for example the denial of the sterling that was owed to india which uh, you know which america kind of supported that not being given to india and uh, you know that's one reason to hold a grudge another reason to hold a grudge is the stand that america took on kashmir where they just supported the british which you know in retrospect like you said it's is completely reasonable but nehru sitting at that vantage point of history probably did not view it in that way and you know just saw them as the enemy yeah that's right and i think in general the american decision to align with pakistan in 1954 in some ways was a major turning point in uh, their engagement with the subcontinent not just with india right so of course india pakistan relations over kashmir and uh, you know and then the american alliance had an impact on india us relations but we also forget there was a second non aligned country in the subcontinent afghanistan at that point of time which also had very serious problems with pakistan primarily over this uh, you know disputed boundary area which they referred to as pashtunistan where the group, community called pashtuns used to live on either side of that and there was a fairly strong pashtun nationalist sentiment uh, on either side and including such stalwart people as khan abdul ghafar khan who was known as frontier gandhi uh, who was a sort of a major advocate of the sort of pashtun um, unity movement and uh, we also you know should recall that afghanistan was one of the few countries which opposed the entry of pakistan into the united nations in 1948 uh, so you know the animosity was actually pretty strong uh, there and you had a parallel development in afghan pakistan relations as what happened with india pakistan relations where american alliance with pakistan in some ways really uh, throws the afghans off the rails and of course we must remember that in that case they were the weaker of the two parties right right so in a sense you have a strange uh, constellation of india and afghanistan on either side of pakistan both of which are ostensibly non aligned countries but after the american sort of drive towards uh, forging an alliance with pakistan end up uh, building ties with the soviet union right and and that of course coincides with the rise of nikita khrushchev who's also open to dealing with non-aligned countries is not as ideologically sort of minded as stalin was and had a more pragmatic view of what the soviet union wanted to do and uh, in some ways you know the us sort of alliance with pakistan really draws a line through the subcontinent uh, in, in and it both makes extremes. it inevitable that india and afghanistan then have no choice they have to sort of gravitate towards the soviet union eventually yeah so you know as historians are generally sort of uh, very averse to saying anything was inevitable though right. i think yeah it's, it's 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 in a sense the logic of it then becomes difficult to escape especially when you have a leader like khrushchev who is willing to sort of give you things right see with someone like stalin for instance uh you know india had absolutely no relationship with the soviet union in the first uh you know 5 6 years after indian independence um because uh, there was an indian communist party which was opposed to indian azadi and stuff and uh, this you know the the government was cracking down on them at home so there's no question of sort of having any good relationship with uh, soviet union 
you know, Nehru sent his own sister, Vijayalakshmi Pandit, as ambassador to Soviet Union. She never even got to meet Stalin. Mm. The first Indian ambassador who ever got to meet Stalin was Sarvapali Radhakrishnan. And that too, Radhakrishnan was, you know, more or less sort of bulldozed his way through and had a chat with Stalin and so on, right? It's only after Stalin's death that there is a slow reorientation of Soviet attitudes towards India. So in a sense, uh, you know, if it is not just because of what the Americans did, but also what was happening in the Soviet Union. So you had this, once again, a constellation of things which uh, brings India and Afghanistan, you know, in a much more favorable relationship with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is willing to sort of bankroll things in Afghanistan. They're willing to bankroll things in India. But uh, at least as far as India is concerned, the United States, however, continued to remain much more important in economic terms. You know, we tend to think of the Indian economy as somehow being very influenced by the Soviet model and so on. I, I think that's actually fundamentally wrong. There were aspects of the Soviet planned economy model which we did take in, especially ideas like the plan frame. But, you know, a lot of your uh, economic plans were vetted by American economists uh, who used to come to India, who used to stay and spend time as, act as consultants to your planning commission. So, and then the Americans, as I said, you know, were very important in bridging the financial deficit which our plans had almost from the very beginning. Right. We'll, we'll cover the economics later, but that whole decision of the US to sort of... Uh, uh, adopt Pakistan in a sense also sets a permanent dissonance in place and that dissonance is in fact uh, reflected in the title of your book itself you know Bill Clinton had once called the Pakistan-Afghanistan border the most dangerous place in the world and Obama had later used the same phrase for the India-Pakistan border yeah. and the American approaches to these two borders in terms of principles is completely different that on the one hand when it comes to the border with uh, India they'll support the whole Kashmir movement you know uh, which Pakistan is uh, deeply interested in but on the other border they won't support the Pashtunistan movement and similarly on one border they are very concerned about clamping down on terror entirely and on the other border for a long time it was kind of a wink and nod kind of uh, mm. thing that you sort of uh, let it happen and would you say that this is something that kind of began at that period and has continued since and this is a sort of a dissonance that uh, it's hard to come to terms with? Yeah it is but from the American point of view you know uh, it's rarely the case that in international politics you're going to be able to apply the same principles exactly. in all places, yeah. right? And uh, in fact, I quote one of the Americans as telling the Afghans that, listen, we were the ones who invented the term self-determination, right? <laughs> but we can also tell you that it doesn't apply to the Pashtuns. So, so in a sense, uh, obviously, a, a larger political and other kinds of interests do come to the fore. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that at least after 1963, the Americans made no serious attempt to sort of intervene in the Kashmir dispute. 1963 really was the last time because India, in the wake of the war with China and the defeat against China, was looking to the United States for uh, military supplies. The United States was, Kennedy administration was giving those military supplies. The Pakistanis and Ayub Khan protested and the Americans felt that maybe this is a good opportunity to try and see if some kind of a solution could be um, done in, in Kashmir. And that, broadly speaking, was the last time the Americans actually directly ever get involved in that play, right? And their whole idea is that, listen, we need the subcontinent to be stable, which is to say we don't want wars. We don't want arms races out here. We want uh, these countries to develop broadly on capitalist lines and clearly stay away from the Soviet camp, right? So in a sense, you had some kind of minimal objectives, which if they were met, uh, you know, life would be going on. But then, of course, um, you know, a range of other considerations come into play from the 1970s. And, and you know, uh, Pakistan has been a failed state for so long that we don't realize that it wasn't always thus. And you point out uh, that, you know, between 59 and 69, when Ayub Khan was in charge, Pakistan pretty much took the economic direction which the U.S. wanted them to take, and it worked for them. They were doing mm -hmm. well. 
Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, uh, you know, that decade in some ways is uh, Ayub Khan was celebrating as this uh, decade of development, of course. Uh, but the the reality was that uh, the Pakistanis uh, were much more amenable to American uh, suggestions on their models of planned economic development. The Pakistan uh, Planning Commission was also very strongly supported by a group of economists based at Harvard uh, called the Harvard Group of Economists. And uh, in a sense, they undertook many of the things that India was not willing to take. For instance, uh, Pakistan embraced the green revolution technologies before India did, right, and never quite faced the same degree of constraints. They allowed for a system of sort of, you know, uh, put in place a fiscal infrastructure of tax breaks and such like things, which allowed for capital accumulation to happen much stronger uh, and this thing. And Pakistan had access to certain kinds of markets. So that's a decade when you see Pakistan is actually economically doing better than India, at least in terms of growth rates and such like things. Uh, and there is a sense that, um, you know, you have a regime which might be authoritarian, but it's still delivering, right? Which, which is uh, the sort of model that uh, American political scientists like Samuel Huntington actually hail as a good way of thinking about it, which is to say that what, you know, uh, democracy and such like things uh, may not be the most important thing for the uh, developing world. It is stability, which is given by an authoritarian figure, who is nevertheless also a benevolent authoritarian figure because he can deliver. So, sort of a redefinition of that manifest destiny, where it's not just yeah. delivering liberty. But That's right. Yeah, yeah delivering right. whatever we feel they need. Exactly. So, in a sense, you have that kind of a thing, and the Pakistani thing. But what is also clear is that by the end of the decade, by 1969. Uh, the, the sort of the lopsidedness of the Pakistani growth story also comes to uh, this thing, right? And that lopsidedness broadly happens along two axes. The first is that of sort of, you know, uh, excessive concentration of wealth amongst a very small group of corporates and uh, families, really. I mean, like, you know, like other parts of the subcontinent, family-owned businesses is the model in Pakistan as well. And the Pakistan uh, Planning Commission's head in 1968 uh, actually discloses in an interview that, uh, you know, some 22 families in the country actually own over 95% of the wealth, right? I mean, of, and then it's, it's a shocking thing because, uh, you know, you've had this. The second axis along which there is uh, this kind of lopsided growth is the uh, West Pakistan, which is Pakistan as we know it today is getting much more of investment resources. Uh, industrialization is happening there at a much stronger pace than what is happening in East Pakistan, today's Bangladesh. And that leads to a major gulf between the two wings of Pakistan. And it's interesting that the Pakistani Planning Commission is actually staffed almost entirely by Bengali economists, right? So the guys <laughs> who are writing the plans know very well that, you know, these things are in some way. So they come up with this whole narrative of saying that, you know, this economic growth model is is essentially neo-colonial because we are providing agricultural sort of inputs and, you know, all the investment and industrialization is happening in the West. And, you know, that's supposed to be the sort of dependency model, uh, you know, uh, so to speak. So in a sense, the, uh, the sort of American assisted uh, economic policies do extract a toll. And that in some ways leads to the collapse of the Ayub Khan regime in 1969. Uh, the, the set of protests in both East and West Pakistan and leads to the overthrow of the military dictatorship. And then, of course, that also sets in train a series of events which lead to the liberation of Bangladesh in 1971. And according to you, and you've, of course, written a whole separate book on this, but uh, even in this book, you devote some time to it, that 71 is absolutely critical, not just to the subcontinent itself in terms of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, but also uh, the way the U.S. perceives the region as a whole. And, of course, in the 70s, everything kind of changes, uh, you know, where the Cold War becomes less relevant and other factors come into play. That's right. Um, 1971 is important because, you know, if you look at the period, say, in in the uh, run-up to the, uh, in, in the 1960s, right, I mean, especially the, the second half of the 1960s, the United States is kind of disengaging from the subcontinent a little bit. Uh, under Lyndon Johnson, the United States is increasingly involved in the war in Vietnam. During the 1965 war between India and Pakistan, the Americans kind of take 
more or less what I call a plague on both your houses kind of attitude, right? They impose arms and bars goes on both sides. They say we're not going to give any aid and so on. And ultimately, when the post-war conference is held, it is held by the Soviet Union. It's a, it's in Tashkent. That's where Lal Bahadur Shastri dies, right? So it's it's a very uh, interesting thing that for the first time, the United States actually allows the Soviet Union to take the lead in settling the geopolitical affairs of the subcontinent. Why is this? Because of American involvement in Vietnam. I mean, right. Johnson just decides that, listen, these are incorrigible. They the bandwidth. These are incorrigible countries. You know, let the Soviets go and break their head against that wall if they want to. You know, he has to worry about great society at home. He has to worry about Vietnam abroad. Right. So his priorities are pretty full. And that's, that's you know, the civil rights bill is being uh, sort of activated at the time. So lots of things happening. Uh, so, so there's a period of kind of disengagement. But then once you have the Nixon administration come in, they come in with a very different set of priorities, which is to say that they want to get out of Vietnam, but get out in an honorable fashion. Right. So an American exit has to be sort of orchestrated in such a way that it does not seem as a scoot and run. And in that context, they believe that the United States will need to sort of uh, reach out to China which is seen as a country which will allow them to sort of, you know, influence North Vietnam to the negotiating table and such like things. In order to reach to China, the Americans decide to sort of go through Pakistan because Pakistan and China have a good relationship uh, going back to 1962-63 when India and China have fought, right? So, uh, Yahya Khan, who's the new military dictator of Pakistan, actually acts as a conduit between the Nixon administration and the Chinese leadership. And in that context, the Pakistanis and the Yahya Khan regime acquires an importance in the Nixon administration's mind, which is kind of out of proportion to anything the Pakistanis were doing at that point of time. Partly because Americans were doing it, the Nixon administration was doing it so secretively. I mean, Nixon did not even inform his own sort of senior cabinet officials about this stuff, right? It was all done in a hush-hush way. And because of this extreme drive towards secrecy and need to sort of keep, especially congressional Republicans, out of the frame, because you're reaching out to China, the old enemy, Right. Um, they want to do it completely through a secret channel and Pakistan becomes important. But this opening up to Pakistan and Kissinger visits Pakistan in summer of 1971 and after that it's out in the open. That coincides of course with the onset of the Bangladesh crisis which has begun with the crackdown of the Pakistan army on the Bengalis in March. The By the end of summer 1971 you have an estimated 10 million refugees uh, on Indian soil and it is quite clear that this is an issue which is you know definitely going to escalate very soon. And the Americans at that point of time take a very pro-Pakistan line uh, in, in a sense. It is arguable uh, about whether the United States actually needed to do that in order to pursue even its own hard-nosed interests with China. Because what we know from Chinese sources and uh, other things uh, is that the Chinese themselves were telling the Pakistanis to sort of back away from that kind of an extreme military action against the Bengalis. But the Americans wouldn't want to do it. And finally, when the war happened, the United States took a very antagonistic position towards India. They cut off all economic aid to India. They cut off all military aid to India, of course, even earlier. And uh, then they sent the sort of, you know, the uh, 7th Fleet with, uh, you know, aircraft carrier with nuclear weapons on board to the Bay of Bengal in an attempt to intimidate the Indians. Uh, and, of course, the Americans claim that Nixon Kissinger believe, you know, or whatever. They used it as a pretext that the India, Indians were going to attack West Pakistan and not just East and so on. Whatever be the reasons, the reality was that that episode really sort of ends up marking a deep rupture in U.S.-India relations. And the Indians just had moved into Dhaka before really anything much happened. Yeah, so, 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 kind of yeah, so, so in a sense, I mean, nothing happened in a uh, real sense, but it left behind a legacy uh, which was, you know, which, which was very difficult to sort of pick up pieces. Right. And, um, and also for Pakistan, because the Pakistanis believe that the Americans actually did not help them very much right. during this, right? So, so, uh, so you again have a period of disengagement with Pakistan, U.S.-Pakistan relations. U.S.-India relations are very turbulent. And one sort of knock-on consequence of the 1971 thing, which in some ways goes to your point, 
which is a recalibration of American sort of uh, priorities in the subcontinent in the mid-1970s, was the Indian decision to test nuclear weapons, which was at least given a certain impetus by the 1971 crisis and what happened during that time. And, um, you know, in 1974, India goes nuclear and preventing India from, you know, becoming a proliferator is a very important American priority from there on. So nuclear weapons as a whole and subcontinent, uh, it's worth pointing out that the Pakistanis were already thinking about starting a nuclear program by 1972, soon after their country had been divided. So it's not as if they started only after the Indian tests, but the Indian tests again gave an impetus to the Pakistani program. The second thing which happens in the 1970s, which I think, uh, again, marks uh, a complete break from the old Cold War priorities, is the rise of uh, what you might refer to as political Islam or Islamism uh, in Pakistan with the advent of Ziaul Haq. But even before that, with Pakistani support to groups like the jamaat islami of Afghanistan, which the Pakistanis were using in order to basically keep the Afghan regime from making claims on Pashtunistan, right? And now, once the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan happens in 1979, the whole dimension of using the Islamist uh, fighters, they call them freedom fighters, Mujahideen, to drive the Soviet Union out becomes a major priority for the United States. Both the last parts of the Carter administration and the Reagan administration, a lot of effort is spent in the subcontinent on doing this. Uh, but uh, that also means that you're also turning a blind eye to Pakistani sort of efforts at acquiring their own nuclear weapon which the Americans know very well about, right? And we now know from declassified American documents, which I've used uh, in reconstructing that particular part of the story, that uh, the Americans confronted Ziaul Haq about his nuclear programs with evidence, you know, which obviously they had collected through technical and other intelligence sources and allowed Zia to sort of get away with evasive lies. And not just that, but gave congressional certification uh, under the Reagan administration successively saying that the Pakistanis are not pursuing a bomb, right? So in a sense, the period between 1975 and uh, 87-88, in many ways, you encounter a set of problems, which I think mark the major concerns for the Americans today. If the Americans today believe that the subcontinent, uh, or at least they've sort of said that is, is the most dangerous place, it is because of this confluence of nuclear weapons and, you know, these jihadi forces which ultimately are the sort of ultimate nightmare of uh, every American administration when it comes to the subcontinent, that somehow, you know, one of these guys is going to get hold of uh, one of those devices or materials and so on. And uh, But the problem goes back to the mid-70s. And so, which is why I say that in some ways, uh, you know, from the mid-70s, it's not just the old Cold War priorities of saying we need Pakistan to contain the Soviet Union and so on, but a completely new set of issues which comes to the fore. And and so here's my question. I mean, the US then takes a bunch of decisions around supporting Islamism and around backing Zia, funding the ISI, backing the Mujahideen and so on and so forth, which have grave historical consequences a couple of decades onwards. But at that time, strategically, must have seemed completely reasonable and the only thing to do. Uh, I mean, what are the counterfactuals here? Could they have done anything differently? Like, is it fair to now point a finger and say that, hey, you know, you created Osama? Or uh, was there something at the time they could have done differently without the benefit of hindsight? Well, I mean, so I think it's fair to say that, you know, the Americans did not create Osama in any straightforward sense of the word, right? Of course. But the uh, reality is that the United States supported a group of people, uh, you know, various kinds of Islamist guerrillas, um, and allowed Pakistan to build a sort of an infrastructure to support and uh, utilize these groups, over which the Americans had very little oversight. 
and basically got the Saudis to match their contributions all in the name of doing this. And actually, towards the fag end of it, ended up giving very dangerous uh, systems to the Mujahideen, including the infamous Stinger missiles, you know, which, with which they were bringing down sort of surface-to-air missiles, handheld surface-to-air missiles. And the Americans spent the better part of the late 1980s actually trying to buy those from black markets in <laughs> all over the world, right? So those were very counterproductive things. So in a sense, while, uh, you know, their desire to sort of get the Soviets out of Afghanistan might have been understandable, uh, you know, it's, it's not clear to me that this was necessarily the best way of doing it. And what is interesting is that the problems with these approaches were pointed out to them at that point of time. It's oh, yeah, not yeah, that yeah. we are talking about this stuff with a post 9-11 kind of a view, right? I mean, if you look at the records of conversation, we now have a few of them uh, between Rajiv Gandhi and officials in the Reagan administration. The Indians are constantly pointing out, you know, it's, it's actually quite, it is almost a replay of what is happening in the mid 2000s, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, the Indians are constantly pointing out to them saying that, listen, look at the kind of people you're supporting, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar. I mean, people like them are genuinely extremists and that if you are going to give, allow these groups to sort of come to power in Afghanistan, it is going to lead to a great degree of instability in that region. And we are not just saying it for ourselves, but on the whole. Right. I mean, in that sense. And of course, as I said, I mean, not just the sort of allowing these groups to sort of take place, but allowing Pakistan to sort of develop a nuclear weapons program covertly and uh, assisting them in effect, uh, you know, by sort of allowing them to do this stuff was a deadly cocktail. And again, I don't think these are only criticisms which can be made with the benefit of hindsight. I think people are pointing it out at, at that point of time that these were dangerous policies and that the acquisition of um, you know nuclear weapons by Pakistan uh, in such a covert manner uh, would have very destabilizing consequences uh, or the support for these kinds of groups. Of course, someone like Osama bin Laden was in the play uh, even then. But I don't think, I think it's fair to say that he was not a very important uh, player. But nevertheless, that was a milieu. I mean, that was an unintended consequence, obviously. I mean, I think, I mean, what was unforeseeable at that point of time was that, you know, some of these people would then target America much later. But then you had to have a series of intervening events, right? I mean, you right. had to have the American sort of participation in the Gulf War, their presence in Saudi Arabia, which then led Osama to sort of you know, think of Americans as the sort of most important enemy and so, so on. It's right? that so, perfect storm of events, if you may call yeah, it. So, that, so in a sense, yeah. So, the, I mean, that is subsequent history. You, I mean, right. I, I think we should not be anachronistic by reading later events into that point of time. But at that point of time, you know, even the characters with whom the Americans dealt, uh, some, many of whom, those dramatis personae are still around. I mean, you know, just uh, earlier this year, we had Gulbuddin Hikmatyar walking back into Kabul, which uh, for people who lived through their generation was an extraordinary sort of event because this man kind of was single-handedly responsible for the destruction of Kabul uh, by artillery firing, uh, you know, in, in, in the early 90s. And uh, uh, these are people with some very, very unsavory past. So... So while, you know, this uh, whole conflict is kind of blowing up and, you know, this is almost like a new front or a new uh, narrative in the old front, one old story comes to an end. The Cold War ends very abruptly when the Soviet Union collapses. And shortly after that, you have India's liberalization. And, you know, these have dual consequences. One, of course, is that the Cold War imperatives no longer really matter. And the other is that the ideological tension between the US and India now seems to be coming to an end because India has opened up. Hmm. And the third consequence of this is that the third strand, apart from power and ideology, which you speak of, is culture. And American culture, which was already popular in India, but now essentially enters and takes over young India. Yeah, I think absolutely. So, I, uh, you know, I, and I think you have to bring each of these uh, various strands into the frame to uh, quite understand why US-India relations have really transformed in the post-Cold War period, right? I mean, why is it that two countries which were sort of divided on sort of political, 
economic grounds, had these cultural gaps, which as we've discussed now, you know, were quite sort of uh, important, persistent and so on, managed to actually uh, come together in that period. And I think the answer to that is not just the end of the Cold War, because in some ways, US-India relations were already improving even before the Cold War ended, right? I mean, and, uh, you know, the declassified documents that we now have access to, I think suggests that Rajiv Gandhi in some ways was the most pro-American prime minister that you had uh, in independent India up to that point of time. Uh, he understood that, you know, for whatever vague visions that he had for India as a sort of 21st century country, which needed to get into computers and all of that stuff, some some sort of story of modernization, uh, the United States was going to be very important. And uh, Rajiv Gandhi was, uh, you know, tried very hard to develop good relations with the Reagan administration, uh, you know, to get all of this high technology transfer. Of course, there were issues still uh, over a range of things. Uh, but, you know, you again understood that once the Soviet Union was going through whatever, Glasnost, Perestroika, etc. under Gorbachev, that the old Cold War dimensions were no longer going to play. So in a sense, till towards the United States starts happening even before the Soviet Union starts. Right. Of course, it's accelerated completely by the collapse of the Soviet Union because that takes away a complete anchor of global politics, right? I mean, so it's a dramatic change, not to minimize its impact. But some of the shift was already happening, right? The second, of course, was, as you're saying, you know, something which is actually a bit of a coincidence, which is the sort of the, whatever, you know, the, the sort the of balance of payments balance crisis. Of crisis, which again, you know, it, it could have happened any time during Rajiv Gandhi's period, because in some ways, it is actually, uh, you know, again, that's where the law of unintended consequences, right? One of the reasons, one of the sort of uh, advantages of going closer to the United States uh, during this period for the Indians also was that you wanted access to capital markets for external commercial borrowing. And uh, the Americans are happy to sort of, because they don't want to sort of do economic aid for India. They see India as a much bigger economy. They say no economic aid, but you can borrow in the markets and stuff. And once uh, Indian borrowing on Western, American sort of, you know, Wall Street and other places starts picking up, that is when, you know, the problems for your later period are being stored up, right? I mean, and, and that's that's where the crisis comes, actually. So, in, in a sense, but it's, it's an independent development. And, uh, and then your back is up against the wall. You have to sort of reform. And for the first time, at least since the 1930s, uh, India is accepts that you know embrace of globalization is, is is a good thing for us, and that I think is an important uh, not just from an ideological point of view, but from a practical American perspective, right? Uh, because what you had was you know this kind of closed economy or with limited access to the external world, where aid is the main driver of relationship, etc. Uh, inhibited certain forms of things that the Americans wanted, right? So in in, in that sense, the uh, but the opening up of the Indian economy also had other kinds of cultural consequences because the Americans uh, were now able to bring to the subcontinent what other historians of Europe have called, you know, the, the commercial imperium, so to speak, right? The, the emporium as the imperium, as one of them puts it, right? Which is to say that, uh, you know, in a sense, that is a very important part of America's uh, allure and its leadership in the 20th century is the extraordinary sort of cultural impact that American... Um, you know, sort of commercial practices and models uh, have persisted. And uh, you, of course, would remember when MTV came to India, right? I mean, what, what I, was I, that? I there. Yeah. <laughs> you were there. So, uh, you know, for, for people of our generation, I suppose, we've lived through some of these changes. So, uh, and and it, they, were, they were very striking changes. And I think what uh, a current generation, younger generation of Indians takes for granted was a transformation that, you know, people like us lived through. So, and I think I think we often take like American cultural power for granted. Like I watched a talk of yours on YouTube, which you gave at Goa, and one of your fellow panelists, there, uh, Professor Varun Sani, uh, made a very interesting point that if you just look at how culture permeates across the world and the differences between American culture and other cultures, is that anybody can wear a sari, but a sari would look like fancy dress on a foreigner. But anybody can wear blue jeans and completely it, it just seems natural. 
and we are all in a sense even old fogies like us who are in our 40s but even we are like far more american uh, culturally than we realize otherwise yeah so i i think that the important shift which happens in 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 the 90s right is that you know there see because the the india in which uh, people of our age sort of grew up right i mean the way i think about it you know there was a culture of conspicuous non consumption right you know the indian elites almost would go out of their way to say that listen we are wearing uh, khadi and that you know you don't want to sort of this thing there's no alcohol permitted in official functions etc etc right i mean the whole gamut of you know there is a very self conscious sense that you want to sort of have this non consumption attitude right which changes which changes quite dramatically and that allows then for a range of things and i think you know what varun sani was saying there and which which i i would put it in slightly different ways but i think the point remains the same which is that you know people tend to sort of criticize especially you know europeans um especially europeans of early 20th century when american commercial culture first landed up in europe after the first world war the european old elite used to sort of snigger at american culture and say how can you call this stuff culture right i mean culture is what we had building is what germans had you know this is, we had this whole sort of heritage of uh, high culture of the west but the reality is that american popular culture is uh, attractive precisely because it's shallow it is its very shallowness that allows it to sort of inhabit various domains right so for one one of the things i talk about in in this book which again is kind of uh, you know uh, people like as a witness to our lives is the establishment of mcdonald chains in this country right how a brand like mcdonald's has adapted itself to the indian market right i mean i've just come from a week in japan you can't get the stuff that you get in mcdonald's here in any mcdonald's in japan right and then the stuff that they give in mcdonald's in japan i've not even eaten in mcdonald's in the united states right so so the ability to sort of nestle into various cultural contexts uh is there primarily because of this quality that we tend to dismiss as shallow or as you know easy to adapt but that adaptability is what counts right i mean how many people are going to take the pains to watch chinese opera I mean, what do you think are the odds that China will be able to sort of exercise the same degree of cultural influence? Right, and of course, the language is much harder to learn, and so exactly. on. Right. And I mean, yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, you know, Francis Fukuyama once um, prematurely spoke of the end of history, and uh, in a sense, it would seem that in the nineties, you also have. uh an end to the conflict between uh, the us and india because on all three fronts you know the power front the cold war is over it no longer matters india is no longer a soviet ally in the ideological front india is becoming a capitalist economy on the cultural front america is basically taking over and you think that everything's going to be hunky dory from now but of course you know fukuyama was premature and uh, even in the context of india us relations everything changes with 9/11 Yes um things do change with 911 but uh, but again i think from a longer historical perspective you know the change doesn't seem as marked as it seemed to us at that point of time uh let me say this both with respect to india pakistan relations right. but also pakistan afghanistan right so on on the pakistan afghanistan thing what is interesting is 911 once again reaffirms a sort of a pattern of cyclical engagement disengagement between pakistan and china right in the mid 1950s pakistan and china come together Now, Pakistan and America come together in the 1960s is a bit of a turn back in in the early 70s again they sort of together late 70s and early 80s they're together again in Afghanistan so you have that sort of cyclical disengagement reengagement happening and that is primarily because of Pakistan's geopolitical location more than anything else. so in a sense if Pakistan has an advantage is actually geography hmm. uh, and it it sits astride areas which are quite difficult for anybody else to access and has a certain vantage point 
um, because of its peculiar geography, which, uh, you know, gives us certain kinds of advantages. And that's what, you know, colleagues like Nitin Pai say that, you know, it's, it's geopolitical rent, right? I mean, in some ways, that's exactly what it is. It's a geographic rent, actually. I mean, in geopolitics comes fundamentally from your geography, right? So, so that is a huge advantage. In the context of US-India relations, of course, uh, you know, it's a... It's a very different kind of reaction, right? Because what happens post 9-11 is that certain forms of activity that the Americans might have sort of put up with through the 90s in the name of sort of freedom fighters in Kashmir, etc. Then comes to be characterized as terrorism and sort of broadly not acceptable sort of behavior. And of course, you also have um, two other things which happen in that period, right? Which is that you have an American president, uh, George W. Bush, who is, uh, again, a very, you know, someone I feel had the American sort of ideology that we spoke about very, very strongly in his head. I mean, that's the way he used to think about the world, right? So for him, the world was about republics and democracies on the one side and others on the other side. So in a sense, that aspect of it allowed him to think of India as this very important kind of country and so on. The second thing which happens in the, you know, in the in the years around this sort of fixation with uh, terrorism and other kinds of security threats is a wider sort of, you know, demographic change which is happening, which is the exponential growth of the Indian-American community in the United States of America, right? And their extraordinary success uh, in the United States, right? I mean, there's a new book edited by Devesh Kapoor and other colleagues called The Other One Percent, which is to say that, you know, the Indian-Americans are actually the top one percent in of all immigrant communities. So Indians are living the American dream there. They are. I mean, and, and, and you know, they're, they're referred to as a model minority. Of course, you know, those kind of blanket terms always mask various kinds of differences and so on. But the reality is that, you know, the cultural impressions that Americans had of India, you know, which we've now spoken about at length, in some ways are dramatically changed in that decade. So I think, you know, while the activities of 9-11 were happening, there is also this background churn of uh, migration, democracy, cultural change which to me seems at least as important as the sort of surface events of terrorism. And so, so, I mean, the closeness of India and US, I mean, you can't turn the clock back. It's it's there and it's just going to go deeper. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, it can only turn back if American society itself changes, right? And right. Uh, in a sense, if we find, uh, you know, uh, this sort of backlash against immigrants and such like things coming back, then we might be able to sort of say that, you know, yes, we're going to have a slightly more difficult period. But at this point of time, I'd say that, you know, some of those sort of longer term issues which were so persistent, have undergone significant changes. Uh, and uh, it's not clear to me that, you know, the clock is going to be turned back. And, and what's also interesting is that while in the 80s, in the phase where they were supporting Zia, I suppose they were tolerant of a lot that Pakistan did, uh, especially with regard to India. But now they've called bullshit on Pakistan in various ways. So, uh, you know, that dynamic is no longer there. Yes, but I would be sort of a little cautious about how we call that particular situation. Because the one thing which, again, slightly longer term perspective suggests is that the United States and Pakistan have had uh, pretty bad times as well as good times, right? I mean, they've been close, but they've also been sort of, uh, they've been both best of friends and best of enemies. So, uh, you know, in, in, in that sense, they've always had a... It's like an abusive marriage. It's like, <laughs> I need you, but you keep well, lying to me. that is the Pakistani me. view, right? The Pakistanis believe that the Americans just use them and, you know, uh, throw away, you know, as, as somebody said colorfully once that, you know, yeah. um, in that that sense, uh, that's a Pakistani certainly view. In fact, I traveled through Pakistan in 2006 and I was chatting with economists there and one of them said that all of them refer to Al-Qaeda as Al-Faida because the Pakistani state was basically failing in 2001 yeah, when yeah. you know all that happened and that's right. suddenly American aid flooded back in and the economy yeah, revived. Yeah, yeah. So, so long as Americans are engaged in Afghanistan and when I say engaged, I don't just mean military presence, but I find it difficult to understand how the United States is going to entirely pull out of a place like Afghanistan. You know, that area overlooks the backyard of China and Russia 
in a sense, given their already existing military infrastructure and presence, they might thin down. But I, I don't see them as giving up, turning their backs on Afghanistan. You know, there's going to be no Vietnam-like moment for Afghanistan, uh, as far as I can see. So in that context, you know, having some degree of stability in Afghanistan will be an important concern. And I think one of the challenges that the Trump administration is going to face very soon is how are you going to have stability in Afghanistan when you have antagonized both Pakistan and Iran simultaneously, right? That seems to me to be a perfect recipe for having asking for trouble in Afghanistan. So you may well see a degree of modulation of policy towards Pakistan, which again, I would not be surprised. I mean, I'm... I'm you know, Geopolitical uh, rank. Yeah. So in a sense, you know, that, that has happened so often now that it is uh, difficult to see. And again, I mean, you know, you would have imagined that if you if you wanted a sensible policy, you would say that, listen, the bigger threat is uh, Pakistan's sort of support for terrorism, especially in conjunction with nuclear weapons. You know, that the whole uh, constellation of things which is so explosive uh, out there, which if not controlled can get out of hand. Um, you know, so it's better that we sort of, you know, keep Iran on the good side and, you know, try and put pressure on Pakistan. But then the Trump administration has chosen to tear up the one agreement they had with Iran. And we also now have a new elephant in the room. Uh, like, how does the rise of China impact the way the Cold War is over, the Soviets are not a factor. Yeah. But how, do, how does the rise of China impact the way America looks at this region? Well, I think it's 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 going to be increasingly a very important part, right? So U.S.-China relations, uh, you know, are now... I think we are, we are now at a point where the Americans have more or less, uh, you know, irrespective of the Trump administration, I think, um, you know, th there's a broader uh, understanding today in the United States that China is going to be the main competitor for us, right? Which I don't think was accepted quite as openly until now. Um, but now even constituencies like businesses, which were always supportive of, you know, closer relations with China, understand and accept that, you know, Chinese practices are sort of the thing and so on. So, so I think, I think, you know, you're now entering into a era where China will be seen as a peer competitor or at least a potential peer competitor. So, you know, th there is going to be a lot of circling of wagons against Chinese. Now, but at the same time, the China-Pakistan relationship has been extremely strong. Over the past decade, you know, you've seen Chinese and Pakistanis coming together uh, in very, very significant ways. And I think that trend is only going to get accelerated. But again, I would give credit for the Pakistanis, right? I mean, throughout the Cold War, they managed to keep the United States and China and even the Soviet Union on reasonably favorable terms, right? So for a country, uh, you know, which, which uh, you know, has had other kinds of problems of various kinds, you know, they've managed to keep a reasonably creditable diplomatic act together. So I, I'd imagine that, you know, they'd be able to sort of work both sides of this. But I think as far as U.S.-India uh, relations are concerned, definitely the rise of China and this kind of thing will will make for greater you know, commonality of interests between the two sides in, in terms of managing that particular rise, in terms of ensuring that that rise is not destabilizing to the rest of the world and so on. The larger question, however, I think, uh, which is there before all of us is to what extent does the sort of attitude taken by the Trump administration uh, mark a historical sort of rupture from America's engagement with the subcontinent, at least since the onset of the Second World War, right? As we've discussed, I mean, the United States has had problems with countries like India, you know, on various kinds of dimensions, whether it's in foreign policy, economic issues, etc. But broadly speaking, the United States has believed that, you know, uh, supporting countries like India is a larger geopolitical interest, right? Whether it was supporting India's five-year plans or, you know, its liberalization, whatever, even though they were unhappy with the pace of various kinds of things right up to date, right? I mean, in a sense, there has been uh, analysts like Ashley Tellis say a degree of strategic altruism as far as the United States is concerned. There has been an assumption, at least under the Bush and Obama administrations, that the rise of India in some ways is automatically an American good, whether Indians actually do anything for America or not. Now, Donald Trump clearly takes a very different view. He wants people to do things for America because he believes they owe the United States. He has a zero-sum view of the world yeah. and everything is transactional. So, it, yeah. So, in a sense, it's... Uh, and in that sense, I think 
if the Trump phenomenon proves to be durable, which is to say that, you know, it is more than just the passing whimsy of one particular politician who has managed to capture power by whatever reasons, uh, that could then mark a very different set of things, right? Because that then marks a certain kind of disengagement or a reorientation of America's uh, position in the world. Uh, which is very different from everything that the United States did in the post-Second World War period, right? And it's in that sense that, you know, I think when Americans say that, you know, is the liberal international order coming to an end and so on, there's a lot of debate currently about that stuff. People, you know, tend to argue about whether, oh, was it a liberal order, etc. But I think the bottom line point is this, which is that when the United States came into the Second World War, it took a certain view of its position in the world, which was to say that if we want to be the global sort of leader and hegemon, then we need to be able to take asymmetric costs for that kind of leadership position, both economically, in security terms, political terms, and so on. Now, with the Trump administration, those assumptions are under question because here it believes that everyone is ripping off America. Is he the first president who's actually thrust aside that sense of manifest destiny? Not really. You know, there have been previous American presidents who have confronted very similar kinds of dilemmas. And I think the person who confronted it in the starkest terms in some ways was Richard Nixon. Mm. Because you think about it, right? When, when Richard Nixon becomes president in 1969, the United States is in this long war in Vietnam, which is going nowhere. The American sort of economy is under terrible strain, partly because of its military expenditure in Vietnam, but also this whole sort of pegging the dollar to the gold, which was the old Bretton Woods order, is kind of coming up, right? And what is the Nixon administration's response? Nixon administration's response is one to unilaterally get out of the Bretton Woods order in 1971, right? With zero notice to anyone. Just one, one fine day say, sorry, convertibility of dollar and gold no longer exists. We are now in a world of free-floating exchange rates, which, which is as big a shock as you can give to the global economy as anything could be. The second thing he says is this so-called Nixon doctrine, where he says that American allies will now have to start taking sort of contributing more towards their own security. You cannot expect the United States to do, right? So it's not very different from what Donald Trump is saying. But the reality was that people like Nixon, Kissinger, however, never believed that the United States had to, you know, basically do transactional deals with everyone around, right? Or to expect reciprocity from everyone, right? See, for a country like India, I think the problem is this, that when you see the United States dealing in this fashion with allies like Canada or Germany or Japan, uh, then as an country which is, you know, still very decidedly non-allied to the United States, what do you expect to happen to you, right? And, and I think the prognosis in some ways is going to be a bit mixed, right? You, you can never be too sure that, you know, you won't get caught in the crosshairs or some kind of a thing. And, you know, for instance, this whole obsession with, you know, every trade relationship has to be balanced. I mean, you know, that's the most extraordinary way of thinking about that's any... Nonsense, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but it's there, right? I mean, he's, right. he's doing it to everyone. I mean, again, uh, you know, just now they've given notice to Japan and uh, he's said in a press conference that India has agreed that they're going to begin talks and so on. I, I don't know what has been agreed, but, you know, those things are coming. So it will make for... Uh, pretty interesting and challenging uh, period for us to navigate. To say the least. So in this episode, I've taken up more than 90 minutes of your time and we've already sort of reached the present day, which is the end of history. So I'm going to ask you to end by uh, sort of asking you a, a question with two parts, which is instead of looking back, look forward and tell me that uh, from a vantage point of 2028, what is the best case scenario and the worst case scenario of American involvement in South Asia? Well, what is the best case scenario is that uh, you have a situation in Afghanistan, which is 
not much worse than what you have right now uh, in a sense winning the war against the taliban with the kind of commitment that they want to make is, is but you see it as an ongoing thing not won the war winning the war yeah so so in a sense it will be an ongoing issue of uh, management of mm. of the problem right see my own sense is you know donald trump was definitely not the first president to deal with these problems he's not going to be the last president right it's it's many of these issues are issues that stem from the region's own problems there is only so much that any american administration can do so they can either work with the grain or against the grain the best hope is that you know you can manage the problems rather than solve them right so in that sense if you're able to sort of keep some degree of stability in afghanistan going if you can prevent pakistan from say you know going further down the route of terrorism support for that kind of infrastructure uh you know ensure that political sort of leadership in pakistan slowly gets some degree of you know strength within their system and so on and you have a relationship with india which um, kind of continues to improve uh, and i think the improvement is not just in uh, security terms but i think also in economic terms i think i think that that's going to be a, okay your best case is incredibly boring what's the worst case yeah what is the worst case the worst case is that you know you have uh, you you could end up with a, a series of sort of conflicts between afghanistan pakistan or pakistan and india uh neither none of which have to be sort of traditional wars of the kinds that happened in the past though right. you know nobody can rule out those kinds of things but uh various kinds of challenges for which the united states doesn't have really the capacity to uh intervene in the way that it was able to do in the past right i mean to me the most uh important challenge i mean forget 2028 but even even today would be that does the trump administration really have the understanding attention span and interest to be able to engage with the subcontinent if you have say a crisis like what happened in 2001 and 2 like when there was a serious attack on india right, right. i mean uh, of that scale or something around the scale of 2008 i mean uh, what, what do we expect americans to sort of really be able to do in that context uh, given how depleted diplomatic resources are in this administration and so on right so so in that sense i think uh, a lot depends on whether the current trends continue up to 2028 or not in the united states right i mean uh, if things take a turn for the better then you know you are always going to be the same but uh, at this point of time i think as you said you know the best case scenario is that you sort of more or less continue to chug along the same lines which is uh, more of the same and the worst case scenario is that you have crises that the united states is not able to manage in any meaningful way in looked upon in a historical baseline right i mean looked upon say from the baseline of 1962 when you had the cuban missile crisis going on but still you were able to do some things uh, when you had a problem in the subcon so the best case scenario is more of the same and we are all still here in 2028 sreena thanks so much for this conversation i've learned a lot from you today and uh, hope to chat with you again sometime thanks so much this was good If you enjoyed listening to this episode head on over to Amazon and buy a copy of Srinath Raghavan's excellent book The Most Dangerous Place A History of the United States in South Asia You can follow him on Twitter at Srinath Raghava3 at S R I N A T H R A G H A V A 3 You can follow me at Amit Verma A M I T V A R M A and you can browse past episodes of The Scene in the Unseen on seenunseen.in or thinkpragati.com Thank you for listening Have you gotten yourself a gym membership and shown up only a few times? Are long working hours cutting your fitness goals short? How about you change things a little? Even a small effort can make a big difference. And I'll tell you how and what exactly. Hi guys, I'm coach Urmi and on the Kinetic Living podcast, you can look forward to some interesting stories of people who have changed the way they look at fitness after their kinetic journeys. 
Episodes out every Wednesday on the IVM app, website and anywhere you get your podcast from. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune into Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. <laughs>